0: welcome to the radically christian bible study podcast i'm your host Wes mcadams here we have one goal learn to love like jesus there are some christians who feel like bible scholarship or bible training at an academic level is completely unnecessary that Bible experts, or so-called Bible experts, are unnecessary and are usually leading people astray. They feel like Scripture is so simple that anybody ought to be able to just pick it up and read it, understand it, and obey it. And on the other hand, there are a lot of Christians who feel like the Bible is too complicated to understand, that they couldn't possibly understand the meaning and the purpose of Scripture because they're not a Bible expert or a Bible scholar. Should we trust biblical scholarship? Should we we distrust biblical scholarship, or is there somewhere in between where we ought to land? Today, I'm going to visit with our guest, Dr. Jeremy Beller, who is the Dean of the College of Bible at Oklahoma Christian University, a wonderful follower of Jesus, and I know that you will enjoy and appreciate the things that he has to share with us and, and to teach us about studying scripture. I want to start today by reading 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14-17. through 17. It says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been equated with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work." I believe that today's conversation is going to help all of us learn to love like Jesus. Jeremy Beller, welcome to the podcast, brother. Thanks. It's great to be here, Wes. It's great to have you, brother. I'm excited to have this conversation. I I think that this is going to be helpful for a lot of people, uh, especially given your your position, your role, and your experience. Um, But before we really dive into this idea of biblical scholarship and uh, being a Bible expert and whether or not you need to be one, I might be helpful just to define the Bible. It it's interesting how how that is a term that we just kind of assume that we're all on the same page when we use that that idea or use that term of the Bible. But how would you define what the Bible is and what we mean when we talk about the Bible?
1: Oh well, that's a loaded question. It's a great question because it's really. Something of a modern development in a, mm-hmm. in a
0: sense. You know, when you
1: read through Scripture, it's more the language of Scripture. Bible as a collection of books uh, that's been recognized as authoritative. Well, that that comes apart later after the first century, but there were writings recognized as divine from the hand of God. Uh, but when you step back and you look at the entire collection, I often think of the Bible as it's a collection of of writings. It's directed by God's Spirit, um, but it's written to tell us about God and God's expectation of creation and Mm. how God interacts with creation through history and where this is going. Um, And so it spans a lot of time giving us glimpses into how has God operated at this moment under these circumstances through these people. And so i Scripture is kind of a story, and some people get nervous when you use the word "story," Wes, because they think that implies not true. It, mm. It's not. That's not at all what it implies. It is. It is the narrative of history and where God fits into this. And so, you know, as I'm teaching the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and even in my Sunday sermon last Sunday. Yes, it records historical events, and I believe fully in the historicity of this book, but it's not just a history book, and and we can't read it as a history book. This is the story of God that God is inviting us to be part of, watching him work in creation, telling us how we play a role in that creation. So there's a really long, complicated answer for you, but I, I think it's a broad picture of God's story. You
0: know, no, I think that's a great way to put it. It's very similar to the way I tend to describe it. I always say that the Bible is a library, and I like how you emphasize that too, a collection of books. It's a, the way I say it is it's a library of prophetic books about God and His covenant people that that it we, we do believe in you said, His spirit carried along these authors. So we do believe that it's it's from God in a sense. But I love that you emphasize the connection to a certain people, at a certain time, certain circumstances. I mean, it is it is interesting, and and it might not be what people might think God would do if he was going to tell people, reveal to people who he is and his will for creation and for the world and the redemption of all things. You might not think that he would give his, his, his story in, in the context of a specific group of people particularly the the descendants of Abraham, but he did. Whether or not we, we would do it the same way if we were God, uh, it doesn't matter. This is the way we believe that God has revealed himself to us is through this specific group of people, the descendants of Abraham, and specifically one particular descendant of Abraham being Jesus the Christ. And so that that makes the Bible very unique because it is connected to a particular ethnic group, It's connected to particular cultures as that ethnic group changed over time and languages, uh, particularly Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic thrown in there as well. So that makes it a very sort of unique, uh, unique collection of books. It's not that God has communicated directly to Jeremy or directly to Wes and spoken to us in English in in a 21st century culture. This book or this collection of books is rooted in in a very particular period of of history, and so that that means that interpreting it or understanding it takes on some interesting nuances. Now, I think that there are there are people on sort of two ends of the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum are people that that sort of deny that you need to know anything about the history or the culture or the languages that they say, well, listen, the Bible says what it says. All you need to do is read it and obey it. That's all you got to do. And and it doesn't need any interpretation. I've heard that my whole life. The Bible doesn't need any interpretation. I don't interpret the Bible. I just read it. And then on the other extreme, I think that there are people that um, they, they, they're they intimidated by it because they realize, oh, it is a little more complicated than that. It's, it's, it's challenging. And so they just kind of push away from it because they're overwhelmed by it. Talk to us about those extremes and and how do we correct some of those misconceptions without reinforcing the the other misconception.
1: Yeah. Boy, that's the that's the world I've grown up in. That's the world kind of I swim in right now is where is that balance between mm-hmm. an appreciation for scholarship, but also for the understanding that most Christians in the first century world had zero educational background. In fact, most Christians of the first century world could not read, which is an interesting perspective on how Scripture operates and what it's about in, entirely. But the Bible can be a very intimidating book because you open it up, it's a different language, different culture, uh, different assumptions, and so that makes a lot of people say, "That's a foreign language. I, I don't, I don't understand that." Scripture can be kind of intimidating also in how it's arranged. You know, there. Sometimes you can pick it up and, you know, you read the, the story of uh, Ruth or Esther. It's a great read. It's a novel almost. Um, but then you get back in the book of Leviticus and what in the world are we dealing with here? And then you jump over to Daniel and Revelation and that doesn't read like a novel. And so it is very intimidating. One other thing that I think makes it difficult for us to read scripture, um, and this one hits a little too close to home sometimes is that we've, in the way we've preached it and sometimes taught it, we've given people the impression that this hand of God just dropped this book out of heaven and said, someday I'm coming back and there's going to be a final exam and you need to understand everything written in it. And so we carry this weight of intimidation that says, if I get this wrong, I'm toast. Hmm. And so that's why we have such strong debates over, um, you know, what is the images in Daniel, or what does Revelation mean, or what about the head covering in 1 Corinthians, and we're not reading it as a conversation of understanding God and his people. We're reading it because everything depends on me getting this right, and because of that, you've got those two extremes, people are really intimidated by it. However, that question in and of itself, as, as you well know, is kind of simplistic, All I have to do is read the Bible and do what it says. Well, how are you going to read the Bible? You're going to read it through a translation. And I remember in in grad school and getting my degree, I thought, I want to learn Hebrew and I want to learn Greek so that I can do this on my own and not have to use commentators. Every translation of the Bible is, in a sense, a commentary. They're wrestling with... What word do I use? Why do I use that? Do I consistently use that? How has this word been used all around? So we have to kind of tip our hat to scholarship in the very handing down of scripture. I believe in the providential power of God and his spirit being at work in the, in the authorship, but also in the preservation and to a certain part, the community of translation along the way. But as we read our our Bibles and we interact with the text, um, one of the it's fresh on my mind again because I'm teaching Matthew is, you know, when the RSV translates virgin in Isaiah seven as young lady, well, they're not just pulling that out of nowhere. They're wrestling with uh, scholarship that says, how can we be consistent here? And people came along and said, well, they've denied the virgin birth. No, because the RSV uses virgin in Matthew chapter 1. And there are reasons for this. But what you see in that is scholarship is wrestling that. And so even our translations are a dependency on scholarship. However, um, there is an appreciation for what scholarship does to help us understand What is the world of Scripture? What questions were they asking? What assumptions were they making? And how were they hearing these texts and things for the very first time? And so that's where I think scholarship informs us. But Wes, I think we have to back up because, again, when someone says the Bible is simple and anyone can understand it, I have to kind of pause and I have to offers a slight adjustment. I think Jesus is simple. Mm. And one can understand the story of Jesus. And what scripture is doing is pointing us to Jesus. And now we get lost in the intricacies of language and genres and contextualization. But at the end of the day, those uneducated fishermen of the first century knew Jesus. And scripture came along to show us how the communities are interpreting Jesus and applying Jesus in their settings. And so that's where I think we have to be careful with that balance, that I don't need scholarship because the Bible is written very easily. Well, scholars themselves disagree. So it's, it's not an easy practice. So are we pointing to Jesus or are we wrestling something else?
0: Yeah. Oh, I think that's so incredibly helpful. In fact, I just got done having lunch with a mutual friend of ours, uh, Jim Martin, and we were talking about this subject. and, And he pointed out, similar to what you're saying here, that there are issues that Paul says are of first importance. Even Jesus, when he looks back at the law, he says that there are weightier matters of the law. So there are things in scripture that are more important than others. That's not to say that any of it is unimportant but there are matters that are more important than others and paul as as an expert in his day of the law could look at the law and say that the purpose of it was to be a a, a tutor a, a servant that brought the people to faith in jesus and that faith in jesus is the goal i really like matthew bates's language around faith being loyalty or allegiance to Jesus. And and that's the thing is that we are saved because we have pledged our allegiance to Jesus because we are living loyally to Jesus, not because we have it all figured out, because no one does. And I think that's that that it really is sort of a on, on the one on the one hand, I hate that anyone is is overwhelmed or intimidated by scripture. But yeah. on the other hand, this idea that that someone Thinks that they've got it all figured out really is it, it is a mark of of arrogance and pride that that really needs to change that that we really need to humble ourselves because as you and I know the more you study scripture the more you realize oh I I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did when I was eighteen years old and I was first going into ministry I thought I've got this thing figured out this is really easy and the more I've studied scripture the more I realize oh. I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of of the meaning and the depth of, of this collection of, of ancient writings.
1: And, you know, you made me, you reminded me this exact thing. When Jesus says, there are weightier matters of the law, he was talking to the scholars. Mm. And yeah. one of the stories I absolutely love in the Gospel of John is Nicodemus because, uh, and I've preached on this, some people may have heard it. It's really interesting to me that... John 3.16 lands between two notable stories. Um, Whoever, you know, whoever believes in me will not perish. Just above that text, Jesus has just talked to Nicodemus. He is a scholar of scholars. He is an insider. And yet when Jesus tells this scholar about you must be born again, he misses it. Nicodemus could explain so much of the law, rabbinic tradition, all of this stuff but he missed Jesus. On the other side of the whoever believes in me is the Samaritan woman. And the way John tells the story, they are literally opposites. Uh, Nicodemus is a Jewish insider. She's a Samaritan outcast. He's a man, she's a woman. We know his name. We don't know her name. Nicodemus comes at night. She comes in broad daylight. Nicodemus comes with certainty. We know you're a man of God. She comes with questions, and yet at the end of that interaction, she understands Jesus. And Nicodemus, the scholar, is scratching his head. And I think that is such a reminder to us in scholarship: this is yes, our work is important, but don't at, don't miss
0: Jesus because Scripture is written to point us to Jesus. Yeah, and and I think that that's. I think that's John's whole point in John 1 in the prologue is that this word this prophetic word that that has come through the prophets that has been with God and is God this prophetic word has become flesh and that when yes. you see Jesus you you see the word when you when you put your faith in Jesus you are an expert in scripture even if you're just a child who yes. says listen I'm a sinner I'm broken, I'm hungry, I, I I don't have the answers, and I've messed up, and I've done all of these things wrong, but I know Jesus is the answer, then, then you have come to the, the most important conclusion about Scripture that anyone could. And on the other hand, there are a lot of so-called experts that still to this day, just like the, those you mentioned in Scripture, that they know far more about the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the history and the culture than I ever will but they don't have faith in Jesus, and they really know nothing. They, they, their knowledge, their learning really profits them nothing if, if it doesn't result in faith in Christ. Absolutely. Well, one of the smartest men I ever took a class with is an agnostic,
1: and this was not at our, one of our Christian colleges. It was at University of Oklahoma. Um, brilliant scholar. Uh, did some brilliant research in non-canonical gospels, uh, but he had left faith. He didn't mm-hmm. believe in Jesus. Um, now, you know, I could have some conversations, and of course he knew things I'll never know and haven't committed my life to, but he missed Jesus. And we have to be careful. Um, I am committed to Scripture, and I am committed to the inspiration of Scripture, and I am committed to the, uh, the authority of Scripture. But at the end of day, Scripture is pointing us to Jesus. And if we don't get to Jesus at the
0: end of it, then we've misread the book yeah yeah so let's let's talk about you you pointed out one sort of example of how scholars are wrestling with the text i could think of of so many other examples and you could as well of of ways that bible translations have even changed over the years and every now and then i'll see a post on facebook that will be berating a a certain translation saying hey they took these verses out of the bible and I want to say, oh, they didn't actually take those verses out of the Bible. there's there's manuscript differences. But, man, w- when you get into all of those areas, that there is I-, I will say this, uh, let me kind of play devil's advocate for a second, that that some people will say, well, listen, all of these so-called experts and these academics, sometimes they they are it it feels like they're they're sort of playing fast and loose with the text. And they're saying, well, If you understood the history, if you understood the culture, then you would know that it doesn't really say what it seems to say. And I know it looks like it says this, but it really says this other thing. And and so how how are those of us who are not experts supposed to believe or disbelieve that what's being said to us? And so I understand that there is a lot of skepticism about scholarship or academia because it, it seems to be that that they take what we've always known to be true, and they say, "Well, you know, it doesn't really mean what it, it seems to mean, or it doesn't mean what it used to say." Uh, and so there's a there's a new there's a new way of looking at it now. And so uh, th- there is that sort of pushback and say, "Well, listen, if this if it worked for me before, the, then I'm just going to stick with what I've always known." So so what do we do with some of those experts? How do we know you know whether or not to believe what they're saying?
1: Yeah, and that is that's one of the frustrations with scholarship. I sometimes jokingly say to students that scholarship is the art of taking the simple and making it overly complex. Um, And, and I do think we have to have kind of a natural concern, be a scholar or anyone that says what you're reading with your own eyes, doesn't mean what it looks like it means. I, I think our default setting should be, what does it look like it's saying? With that said, uh, scholarship, I think, should be a practice of humility to mm. say, okay, there are some things I don't understand, and what what is brought to the table? Scholarship, I think, one of the strengths is it makes us kick the tires of our assumptions. So yes, yeah, scholarship can be wrong and is often wrong, and as I mentioned earlier, scholars disagree among themselves. It's not as if it's some, everybody agrees on this. Um, But there is a sense in which when you see a lot of scholars from different areas and different backgrounds beginning to coalesce around some things, that doesn't make it right by nature, but it does say, what do they know? And maybe I should look into this. The problem is when people immediately default to scholars. Well, that must be true because the scholars said it. And it's also a problem that say, well, I'm not going to believe it because scholarship says that kind of this anti-intellectualism. Hmm. Um but but I do think where scholarship is important is to say are we asking the right questions? Are are our assumptions built on reasonable understandings? Because even non-scholars have bias, uh, biases and even non-scholars um kind of read with kind of this um this bias towards affirming what I already believe. Mm -hmm. And it helps to interact with someone every now and then that says, are you sure about that? And so scholarship will push you at times. So how do you know what scholars to believe? How do you know? You have to appreciate the work that they're doing. But at the end of the day, my, my my first thought is, well, if it doesn't mean exactly what it appears it means, it's going to take some overwhelming evidence to convince me otherwise. And sometimes that evidence shows up, and sometimes it doesn't.
0: I know, I can't stand interruptions and ads in the middle of podcasts either, so I won't keep you long, but I do want to tell you about Logos or Logos Bible Software. This is the Bible software that I use when I'm preparing for a Bible class, when I'm preparing a sermon, or when I'm just doing Bible study. If you don't have a Bible study suite, a Bible study software at your disposal, I really think that you will benefit by checking out Logos Bible Software. It really can help you take your Bible study to the next level you'll have a library of resources available at your fingertips on your phone on your tablet on your laptop it really is incredible the number of resources that you can have without having a big library in your office you can carry around bible study tools wherever you go so if you want to check that out go to radicallychristian.com slash logos radicallychristian.com slash l-o-g-o-s i think that you'll be really impressed by what they have to offer and i I think that it will help all of us learn to love like jesus now back to the bible study yeah yeah absolutely i think those are really great points i i think that um that that it's really difficult as you said on the one hand you've got you've got scholars that are i i mean let's just be honest that especially around issues uh we we had rubel shelley on the on the podcast not too long ago to talk about his new book uh male and female and, and he is pushing back against the the affirming, uh, as he puts it, the revisionist scholars who are saying, well, the Bible doesn't mean what it says or doesn't mean what it seems to say about same-sex relationships, that as long as it's uh, a loving, monogamous relationship, it doesn't matter who, who it's with. Um, and he's... Coming back and saying no, no, no—the traditional, uh, the position that that Christians have held for two thousand years is the one that that Paul and Jesus were were uh, were stating. So, so when we hear scholars that that say something, on the one hand, th- there is a good sort of saying, "Hey, I'm I'm suspicious of that. I don't. Um, I, I, I I'm not sure that what you're saying is true." Um, and, and it's good to kind of hold your ground. But on the other hand, as you said, there is also the temptation, for instance, if somebody is is struggling with same-sex relationships or same-sex attraction, when a scholar comes along that says, hey, maybe we misread this, they're very quick to, to sort of jump on board with that or... Um, any of us when we when we sort of want something to be true uh, we tend to take that scholarship and and believe it and say hey this kind of affirms what i believed but on the other hand when there is something that that hey a scholar comes out and says that that hey the traditional position or the the majority position may not be right they may actually have a really good case to make and they they may need to move i, I think about things that i've learned over the last you know, 20 years from biblical scholars. And it makes so much more sense of the text as a whole. It's given me a a new lens through which to read things. And it's made sense of not just one passage, but of so many passages. How do we know when to let go of our, our, our firmly held belief and when to, to not? Because on the one hand, I really respect those who they're holding their ground and they're not being swayed by by sort of new ideas that that are coming down the pike. But on the other hand, there's a there's a stubbornness and an unwillingness to learn sometimes on for all of us when when there really is good information, but we're saying that's not what I've always believed. So therefore, I'm not going to accept it. How do we how do we balance those? Yeah, there
1: there is a sense of intellectual honesty that mm. that you're looking for. So when you see, um, I, I think. Brother Shelley's book is a, is a great example of that, because uh, in our current culture, the LGBTQ reading of Scripture um, is one of those cases that says, well, I know it looks that way and it sounds that way, but we've been misreading that. Anytime a reading goes against 2,000 years of history, 4,000 years of history, mm-hmm. that ought to be flag number one. Um, that doesn't mean we couldn't have been wrong, but uh, that's one of the challenges that I say. Mm, there are a lot of smarter people for years who've read this a different way, so that that's kind of the cautionary flag. The other one is, um, what is the motivation for saying this? Now, we have motivations for rejecting things because, well, I don't deal with those issues and I disagree with that. So we have to check our motivations too, but. That is a question you have to kind of put in the mix. But there is this sense of, are they taking Scripture seriously? Are they taking all Scripture seriously? Um, I was watching an exchange between two people, and they said, well, I know that's what Jesus said, but he was just kind of using the language of the day and quickly moved on. Well, no, if that's true, it upends everything you just built your you know, system on. You, you can't just dismiss things like that. Um, I think we have to be very interested in, do, do these people's lives, the scholars, whoever we're interacting with, do their lives reflect the spirit of what God is calling us to to begin with? Um, I've read a lot of scholars who just, they hate Christianity, they hate the church, they have an ax to grind, And so, you know, as Paul, because the church in Galatia was asking this question, who do we believe? Do we believe the people over here? Paul says, well, here, let me give you a metric whose life is reflecting a fruit of the Spirit. And so I've I've watched people who were very strongly driven, sometimes people with whose conclusion I agreed, but boy, they don't match that category of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Their scholarship's not reflecting that. And so, that says we need to kind of put a hold on this. And I'm also interested in, who are people willing to say things at cost? Mm. Um, Will they take a position because they firmly believe this, no matter what it's going to cost them? Um, You know, you think of the apostle Paul, Saul becomes a Christian, that move between, no, my Jewish Bible doesn't say Jesus is Messiah, to Everything in my Jewish Bible says Jesus is Messiah. There was a cost at that, that Paul was willing to accept no matter what conclusion it came to. Um, I remember uh, one of the scholars, I really appreciate reading his work, um, Ben Witherington. Uh, Ben does a lot of uh, literary historical readings of scripture and and I appreciate his work. But the first time I I, uh, interacted with Ben, he was at um, he was at a conference teaching revelation. And I thought, well, this will be an interesting study in revelation. And he opened up uh, Ben's from, I, I think, a Methodist tradition, a Wesleyan tradition. And um, his read on revelation upended the traditional um rapture theology and premillennial theology. And I thought, you know, given the context of where uh, Witherington comes from, That's kind of a big cost for him to say, I don't read my Bible the way everybody else does. Um, And some people may have rejected that outright, but he was willing to say what he firmly believed. Um, And so those are all just kind of things you have to weigh when you're thinking of scholarship. And someone who comes up and says, hey, I've come to this conclusion and your Bible doesn't really mean what it says. Well, okay. Okay. I can be wrong and I'm often wrong, but what's our end goal and, and what's the
0: process by which we're walking through this? Yeah. Oh, I think that's so helpful, Jeremy. I I think that, that when you were talking, it made me think of, I, I, I tend to encourage people to read scripture through a cruciform lens, but I, I think that what you're saying is that we should even look at scholarship through a cruciform lens. I think, Part of it is looking at their life, and, and that's what Jesus encourages us to do, what Paul encourages us to do, what John encourages us to do, that if if somebody is making claims about God, ask, can you see the fruit of the Spirit in their life? Does their life reflect the love of Jesus? Are they living a cruciform life? Are they putting to death the things that Scripture says are the, the works of the flesh? And if they're not if they are living into the works of the flesh and if they are encouraging others to walk in the flesh it doesn't matter how much you want that to be true it's not if they're arrogant if they're if they're toxic if they're they're berating others or if they're encouraging things that scripture explicitly says are immoral then this is not the the work of of Christ this is this doesn't reflect that and i think also as you said, to examine our own motives, look at the log in our eye. I like to, to look at anything that I'm hearing and say, Is this encouraging me to live a cruciform life? Is this encouraging me to put to death the, the things of the flesh and live into the spirit? I think one of my biggest frustrations when, is when someone responds to preaching or teaching with, I don't agree with that. Because in a sense, all good preaching and teaching, when I first heard it, I didn't agree with it either. And that's the whole point. My life is not in agreement with this. But if it's true, it doesn't matter if I agree with it or not. It matters whether or not it's in agreement with the gospel, if it's in agreement with Christ. And and so the the good teaching and even the good scholarship is going to hurt when we hear it. It's going to say, oh, well, that doesn't line up with what I've always thought or what I've always been doing in my life. And and if I accepted that to be true, would my life look more like the life of Jesus or less like the life of Jesus? And I think that those kinds of questions, both in reflecting on the fruit that you see in the teacher's life, but also what kind of fruit would this produce in my own life? What do I think of that? And I think that that's a good test for things like the LGBTQ interpretation of scripture does does the acceptance of these new teachings does this lead us to a life that is more putting to death the things of the flesh and living into the spirit or less and and I think the the answer is pretty obvious yeah yeah
1: and it's a it's a holistic approach to scripture rather than kind of a whack a mole on what this text mm-hmm. or that text means again the Bible is a comprehensive story of God's expectation for his people. And so, um, you know, in, in these conversations, sometimes you'll say, well, this text seems to be suggesting, and someone says, yeah, but this text, as if this text over here means I don't have to respect this text, Right. when really they're in conversation with each other. And it's not an either or, it's how do these both tell the story of God and call us to faithfulness and to this cruciformity, you know, this... If this teaching is true, am I gonna be more like Jesus and his expectation or not? And how is it gonna cause me to treat other people if I draw this conclusion?
0: And I love how you use the phrase seriously, to take scripture, to take all of scripture seriously. I all too often I hear people say that that they read the Bible literally. And and I think what they tend to mean is is seriously, my my kids do that too. They say I'm I'm literally starving to death, and it's like, no, you're not literally starving to death. You are figuratively starving to death. Yes. Um, but but so much of scripture is not literal. It it it's not meant to be read literally. You don't read poetry literally because it's poetry. You read you don't read apocalyptic literature literature literally, but you do have to take it seriously. And I think that so often people will will dismiss certain passages by saying, well, that's just figurative or Jesus was, Jesus was using hyperbole. Oh, okay, that's good that you recognize that. I mean, that's a really important step in, in understanding and applying scripture, but it means something. If I tell somebody it's raining cats and dogs out there, I, I don't mean for them to take it literally, but I do expect for them to take it seriously. If they say, well, Wes was just speaking figuratively, that was just a metaphor, and then they walk out without an umbrella, well, they didn't take my words seriously. And so I think so often we, we say, well, is this literal or figurative? And then we think if it's figurative or if it's a special type of literature or a special genre, that, that means we don't have to take it seriously. And, and I think that that's the wrong conclusion. In fact, I think sometimes figurative language is used because literal language doesn't go far enough. If I say If I say my heart is broken, that's not a literal phrase, but it means more than if I said, I'm sad. Yes. I'm sad is the more literal way to say it, but it doesn't capture the nuance. It doesn't capture the the expanse of what I'm trying to communicate. Yeah, it,
1: literal or figurative language does not dismiss meaning. Figurative language says this has to hit you emotionally mm. and imaginatively in a way that just the literal reading doesn't. So- Uh, You know, all of those things. My heart is breaking. No, it's not. It's still beating. Your your blood's still flowing. No, but I need you to understand the pain and the hurt behind this. And so I I think that's a great way of explaining that. You know, Revelation paints all these dramatic pictures that are symbolic, but it's using that symbolism to help focus our emotion and imagination on the literal truth that Jesus is Lord. Lord and all things are under his power and god sits enthroned and nothing can threaten that well i can say that but that language helps you
0: envision that and feel that in a different way yeah definitely well jeremy let me let me move on to this last question and and say i it's obvious that you believe in biblical scholarship with with the nuance that that we want to be careful and and, and have a proper amount of of caution uh, about that and you're you're not only being a biblical scholar yourself, but you're helping to train those that are going into the academic pursuits of, of biblical knowledge and scholarship. But that isn't everybody's life, right? I mean, there's a lot of Christians that are listening to this podcast that they don't have the time or the resources or the ability or the interest in becoming a, a biblical expert in, in taking courses at a college level. But we all could be better students of scripture and i think we should even though we say that the the important thing is that we get jesus we still want to to learn and grow and to know him better and to know the the word better so what can the average christian do to sort of take their their bible study to the next level what might be some of your encouragement well the first
1: one is obvious and very simple and that is read your bible mm. and But when I say read your Bible, I mean read it holistically. So when we read the Gospels, read them the way Matthew wrote Matthew and Mark wrote Mark. Sometimes, and we preachers are kind of uh, guilty of this, we'll take a verse from Matthew, and to help you understand that verse, we'll take you to Luke or John or Galatians, and there's beauty in that, but there's also this flaw. Matthew didn't use those texts. In fact, most people who read the Gospel of Matthew for the first time did not know those texts existed. Um, and so, yes, we are blessed to have the collection of Scripture, but try as best you can to ask the question, why does Matthew tell this story the way Matthew tells this story? And, um, because uh, one person once said one of the worst things to happen to our Bibles is versification. That when we mm-hmm. broke them into verses, we began memorizing sections of Scripture or just snippets. We've tweeted Scripture in our <laughs> mind rather than asking what is the full context of Scripture. And so there are I know a lot of people who can quote a lot of Scripture, but they do not know what that Scripture is saying. And so one of the first things you can do to be a better Bible student is to just read that text of Scripture. Um, someone met me the other day. They had a, a big stack of um, index cards, and they had individual verses written on them. And he said he's working to memorize the New Testament, which is a very noble goal. problem is he's, he's memorizing this text here and this text here. And I said, Scripture is a story and the the context is telling that story. So, if you want to become a better Bible scholar, wrestle the text and and ask that question. Um, and and no context. Context isn't just the few verses before and the few verses after it. It's the it's the whole of that book. The whole of that story. One of my one of my favorite examples of this is uh, in Matthew eighteen. You know, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, you go to them. Then you take two or three witnesses, and then you take it before the church. And if you take it before the church and the church doesn't hear, treat them as tax collectors and sinners. Well, you ask a crowd of people, what does it mean to treat someone as a tax collector and sinner? Well, you have nothing to do with them. You ostracize them. Well, if you've been reading Matthew's story, how does Matthew tell us Jesus treated tax collectors and sinners? Matthew himself is a tax collector who Jesus reached out to and sat at a table with. And and if you just read that verse in isolated context, you would think you're done with that person. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. Yes, they are outside the community, but you do not give up on that person. And as it turns out, when you read the context, it's interesting in Matthew 18 that that story is preceded with Matthew's telling of if a man has a hundred sheep and loses one, he goes after them. And that's what you do in this situation. You go to them, go back. The second time, they still won't hear, you go back. They still won't hear the church. You don't, you keep seeking that sheep. It's also fascinating when you read the context, the very next story is Peter saying, well, then how many times do I have to forgive them? And all of this is working in context to tell a singular story, to tell a narrative of what does grace look like in broken relationships. Now, all of that stuff I just said is not grounded in some first century deep scholarship, although it does inform this text in some ways, you know, the, the witnesses and, and what was it like to be a shepherd and all that stuff, and that informs that. But that basic understanding of that text boils down to, look at how Matthew is telling his story. Read the text and reread the context. And then when you look at it on the big picture of Matthew, Matthew's telling a gospel to people who have been outside the community. He's a tax collector himself. His genealogy is about women who were sexually outcasts to some degree, and wise men non-Jewish people show up to announce the arrival of Matthew has an eye towards people who've been on the outside. And in this story in this context, that kind of grows. So but that was a long explanation of the first idea, which is just read your Bible and and read the story in the gospel as it is written. And and read, you know, Acts as the story it's telling. And when you borrow from other texts, that's fine. But just remember, there are a lot of people for hundreds of years who never had a full collection of the Bible. Christians, you know, when it says that they searched the scriptures daily there in Acts 17, they're not all sitting in their living rooms, thumbing through a concordance and looking. They didn't have it. Most people couldn't read. Most people could never have afforded a collection of books, let alone scripture. They were doing this in community. Um so, how is the story of Jesus being told in this setting to these people at this moment? Uh, and we've got to become better readers of Scripture. And as preachers, we've got to do a better job of not just pulling this text to prove a point that I want to make, but asking, what is the whole of this text doing? The other thing I would suggest is um, read Scripture not just for information, but for formation. Mm. Again, it's that question of, what is this telling me about God? What is this telling me about my relationship to God? What is this telling me about what God is doing in the world then, and then what is it calling me to do in the world now? The nuts and bolts of Scripture are fascinating, and scholarship helps us see that. But again, at the end of the day, it's it's forming us, not just informing us. And the uh, interact with scholars. Um, there are some, there are some people writing stuff that is more accessible, um, that's not written to kind of confuse or snowball you, but just to say, you know, there is some, there is some deeper stuff at work here, but here is how this is applying to the text and the meaning of the text. So you don't get lost in the technicalities, but you still uh, you still glean from the beauty that is the scholarship that
0: helps inform what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned this in sort of in passing when you're talking about reading that they read it in in community. And I think that that too, and, and even it as you said, as we consult scholars, we really are reading scripture in community, even if it's not community, that the, the best community is face-to-face community. but But I think listening to podcasts and, and reading books and and even going back and reading old books and old scholars and listening to history. As you said, I think we would guard ourselves against misinterpreting scripture if we were well acquainted with how has the, the church universal throughout time, globally and historically, how have they read this scripture? And that doesn't mean that they were always right, but it does mean that we, we have to listen to one another. And I think to push back against the the person who says, well, I just read the Bible myself. I interpret it for myself. I read it for myself. Then you are listening to someone. The The, the person you're listening to is you. As, and you are not. I am not. N- none of us are the final word on this. But that's what we're claiming when we say, I don't listen to anyone except myself and my own interpretation. Again, that's that tends to be very arrogant. We it's it's humble to read the Bible in community within a church community for sure, but also within the the wider community of people who have been reading and trying to understand and follow Jesus for two thousand years now. Yeah, yeah,
1: and that and that really is Wes the practice of the church. It was the Jewish practice after. Mm. Uh, In exile, when synagogues develop, synagogue is a place that we come and in community read Torah, we read scripture and we reflect together on what is God doing here. Um, I love reading scripture with someone who has studied and reflected on a part of it that I haven't to learn from them. And I love having exchanges with people who can say, well, have you ever thought of this before? Mm. Um, And I think if we really believe that the church is important, as I'm as I do and you do and most people watching this do, then we believe that there is something God does in community um, that is necessary. And so, I I said this earlier, you know, it was hundreds of years before people carried a leather-bound copy of 66 books. How how were they faithful to God before that? Mm. How did they—some of them only had Matthew, some of them only had Romans— and yet, I still believe the presence of God was among those people. How did they do that? Well, they trusted in the overall story that God is telling in Scripture, which was our salvation is in Jesus and not some final exam that's going to be here at the end of the day. But this is expressed. How, what's it mean to be a Christian in Rome and in Galatia? What does the story of Jesus look like told to a Jewish community? And what does that look like in our community? That's the aim of Scripture, not, not to get us ready for some
0: world exam on, on the Day of Judgment. Yeah, oh, Amen. Well, Jeremy, thank you for this conversation. But more than that, thank you for your work in the kingdom. Thank you for for being a biblical scholar and being curious and always learning uh, more and more about Scripture, but also teaching that to others and, and helping people to follow Jesus. Well, thank you, Wes, and thanks for your great ministry. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. If you have just a moment, we would love for you to go and rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening. It really does help more people to find this content. I wanna thank each and every one of the guests who join me every week for these Bible studies, Beth Tabor, who volunteers her time to transcribe this podcast, each and every one of you for listening, and our entire McDermott Road Church family who makes this podcast possible. Now, let's all go out and love like Jesus.